0: Welcome back to the Furs and Frontiers podcast. I'm your hostess, Tracy Walmer. In this podcast, we discuss the history of the North American fur trade, and we highlight the people and places that made the fur trade what it is. Today, we're going to look at the amazing history of Lenape Hawking, as the local Muncie Indians called it, but you might have heard it called New Amsterdam. Today, it's part of the great state of New York, and the part we're going to be concentrating on in this podcast is the area that we today call New York City. In terms of square mileage, it's not huge, only about 320 square miles. But the number of people living here is phenomenal. In fact, it is the most populated city in the United States, more than double of what second place Los Angeles has. In 2021, data showed that the population of the entire state of New York to be almost 20 million people. That's for the whole state, with nearly 9 million of those people living in New York City alone. Almost half. Now, the original New Yorkers arrived more than 10,000 years ago. They were Algonquian-speaking tribes that inhabited much of the northeastern United States. Within that umbrella term of Algonquian, the people in this area of New York were part of the Lenape Nation. The Lenape Nation was divided up into two major groups. The first group were called the Munsee, and they lived in the Hudson River Valley as well as west past the Delaware River and south into northern New Jersey. Their cousins were the Unami, and they lived in the southern two-thirds of New Jersey, northern Delaware, and eastern Pennsylvania. Sometimes, these natives are collectively called the Delaware Indians because of where they lived though only a small part of the Lenape Nation actually lived in Delaware. For anyone not familiar with the geography of this area, the Hudson River flows down through New York, runs between New York and New Jersey, and flows into the Atlantic Ocean. At the southernmost point where the Hudson meets the sea is an island about 13.5 miles long and 2.5 miles or so wide. That is the island of Manhattan, To the south of Manhattan is an island, about 72 acres around, called Governor's Island. And to the east of that is another massive one, about 120 miles long, and it's very appropriately named Long Island. There are more than 50 islands in and around Manhattan and Long Island, including my favorite, Fire Island, a 30-some-mile barrier island south of Long Island. Now, in 1524, Giovanni de Verrazzano sailed up the North American coast and into what would become New York Harbor, before continuing northwards and becoming the first man to prove that the coast was continuous from Florida to Maine. The next European we know who explored this area was Henry Hudson. He was working for the Dutch East India Company. Here's a side note. You know how the Northwest Company is abbreviated NWC? or Hudson's Bay Company is HBC. The Dutch East India Company is abbreviated VOC, which is short for Verenigde Ostendisha, Company. So we're going to call it the VOC. So the VOC hired Henry Hudson, an English sailor, to find the fabled Northwest Passage to the Indies. And in 1609, Hudson sailed into what would become New York Harbor, and he made the first contact with the indigenous people in this area. There were a few tribes here that we're going to talk about today. Particularly important are the two tribes who lived on Manhattan at this time. The first group were known to the Dutch as the Vekweheek, and it's spelled W-E-C-K-Q-U-A-E-S-G-E-E-K but it's pronounced the Quahake. They inhabited the northern two-thirds of Manhattan Island, while the Canarsie Indians lived on the bottom third, as well as on Long Island to the east. Besides the Canarsie, other tribes lived on Long Island. The Matinacocks, the Rockaways, the Merricks, the Massapequas, and many, many more. Sometimes you see them all referred collectively as the Matawaks, This is because, back then, nobody could be bothered to learn the differences between them, or even their individual tribal names. Now, between 1609 and 1613, Dutch ships came and went. The Dutch were looking for a place to do business, not a new home. So they were primarily coming in, trading for what they wanted, and then sailing home again. In fact, it wasn't until 1613 that the first non-native took up residence on Manhattan Island. He was an interpreter and the employer of the VOC, named Juan Rodriguez. His father was a Portuguese sailor, and his mother an African woman. Besides his parents' native languages, Juan spoke several other languages that he had picked up from his travels. So for him to pick up the Lenape was a piece of cake. While learning the Lenape language, he fell in love with the Lenape people, and one woman in particular, though we are never given her name. When the ship pulled out of town in 1613, he stayed, becoming the first non-native to live there. In 1614, an explorer named Cornelius Jacobson May became the first man to sail up the Maritus River, which is what we now call the Hudson River and he would be just one of many to explore and open up this area over the next several months. In fact, just a few months later, a man named Hendrik Christiansen arrived in the harbor. His ship sailed up the Hudson to present-day Albany, and this is where the Dutch built their first establishment. Fort Nassau was a 26-foot by 36-foot warehouse surrounded by a very tall stockade wall and an 18-foot moat. The Dutch planned to use Fort Nassau as their main trading hub, collecting resources from the local natives and from the environment themselves. While Christensen's crew was building what would someday become the state capital, a Dutch explorer named Adrian Bloch was the first European to sail completely around all those little islands and around Long Island itself. He also explored the coastline of New York, Connecticut, New Jersey, Massachusetts, Rhode Island. Now, in 1617, spring rains destroyed Fort Nassau and required it to be rebuilt. Being smart and completely familiar with frequent flooding in the Netherlands, they relocated the fort to higher ground. While Fort Nassau was being rebuilt and improved upon, the Netherlands sent their first true Dutch colonists to the New World. And in 1624, several hundred men, women, and children, including 300 or so free blacks and more than 350 slaves, sailed into the North River harbor, and they landed on what we today call Governor's Island. They immediately start setting up their new homestead. This new world wasn't all that different from the one they'd just left. The topography was very similar, and the weather was such that it felt like home. But north of Governor's Island, three days walk up the Hudson, the Dutch workers at Fort Nassau were once again disheartened to find their warehouse under water. So once more, these hardy explorers started again, this time building Fort Orange on even higher ground. That fort becomes what we today call Albany, New York. In 1625, another Dutch ship landed on Governor's Island this time carrying the man who would govern the new colony. His name was Peter Minuit, it's spelled M-I-N-U-I-T, and he starts helping his colonists organize their new town. While all this settlement was going on, England looked over at the New World, and they saw the Dutch building on this pristine land, and decided they wanted a piece of that pie. It didn't matter that the Dutch were holding the pie, Now for those who aren't familiar, the English settlers at Plymouth set up their first town in 1620, and over the next decades, the colonists built many new villages all over the little boot that sticks out from Massachusetts. But they also claimed all the land around them in the name of England. It was basically a finder's keepers mentality. You just sail around, you slap a flag down, and claim the land for your king. Oh, somebody else's flag is here already? well, we'll just kick that aside, there you go, I don't see any other flag. And more often than not, the winner of these disputes was the guy with the biggest cannon. So in 1635, King Charles of England granted all of the land that his Plymouth colony had claimed, which was basically all of Long Island and the surrounding smaller ones, and he gave it to his buddy, William Alexander, the Earl of Stirling. Alexander then took out what he wanted, and he sold the rest of the island back to the English colonies of New Haven and Connecticut. Keep in mind that this is the island that is inhabited by 13 different tribes of indigenous people who have no idea that they just got shafted. So, Peter Minuit is doing well as the governor, and he and his people are filling up Governor's Island, and he looked around at this massive 72-acre homestead on which his thousand plus people are now living and working and he said "Yep, we're gonna need a bigger boat. So he looked northwards across the water and he saw the pristine island that the local natives lived on called Manhattan. The Dutch had been trading with the local Canarsie Indians on Long Island for a few years now and they developed decent friendship. So on his next Long Island swap meet Peter Minui points across the water at Manhattan and asks the Canarsies who owned that land. The Canarsies, who have no concept of land ownership, said, Nobody. Minui offered money to the Canarsies for the island. Now, since the Canarsies didn't understand what was happening, and they thought he was offering payment for hunting privileges just like everyone else did, they took his money. Had they known they'd be selling the land permanently, they might not have agreed to it, particularly since they didn't actually own it in the first place, and they didn't even live there. It was the Vekweheek that inhabited most of the island. In 1626, Peter named his new island New Amsterdam. The surrounding territory claimed by the Dutch was called New Netherlands, and now the natives begin to be forced out. It's often said that Peter Minhui paid $26 in beads. That's not entirely true. When you look at the value of things in history, you must keep it in context with inflation rates over time. Otherwise, the facts get skewed. Yes, it was $26 worth of trade goods, but it's equivalent to $1,200 in today's money. But you get the idea. It was still peanuts compared to the value. Incidentally, for anyone looking for a great site to do this type of historical comparison, try officialdata.org US. Peter Minwe intended to establish a trading hub for sugar from the Caribbean, spices from the West Indies, and African slaves. He didn't actually see a profit in the fur trade. And to be honest, no prominent Dutch citizens wanted to come live in this wild, untamed place. So the only people showing up at this point were privateers and other less savory folks. Four times a year, trade ships would enter the harbor carrying supplies and then leave the port to take the trade goods back to the Netherlands. Other than that, there wasn't much else to do except farm and fish. So industrious merchants began to build taverns and they built lots of taverns. In fact, there was one tavern for every 20 men in the city. That's almost 20 taverns on a 13 mile long island, which led to a lot of public drunkenness, fights and duels and very loud altercations. I've also read that the livestock roamed around unfenced because, well, it's an island, where are they gonna go? And it wasn't uncommon to see chickens and pigs and cows roaming the paths that led from one farmstead to the next. As the city began to grow, the livestock continued to wander free, pooping on all the walkways. This coupled with the fact that bathrooms weren't really a thing yet, people just went out to the tree line and dropped their drawers, so apparently it smelled pretty bad. When you take this into consideration with almost monthly raids from the Indians, who had by now realized that they had been hornswoggled out of their land and they wanted it back, most prospective emigrants in the Netherlands looked at all this turmoil going on and went, yeah, yeah, I'm good. So by 1629, the Netherlands wanted to promote settlement of higher society folks to their new paradise. So they implemented something called the Patroon system. It's a sort of feudal system where vast estates were given to the elites, who then rented out tracts of lands to tenant farmers. In the patroon system, the landlord controlled all aspects of their tenants' lives, including how they lived, when and where they were allowed to move to, who they could marry, and how they could conduct their businesses. In order to receive these land estates, the landlord was required to bring in a certain number of tenants, now, from the tenants' point of view, they got to farm the land tax-free for 10 years. But after those 10 years were over, they had to pay tax on the land they were renting. And that was pretty much their only benefit. The patroon system didn't do much in the way of improving the lives of people who worked the land. Just like anywhere else in the world, even today, some landlords were kindly folk who helped their tenants prosper. And others were well, jerks. Peter Minuit established a democratic government with a decent judicial system and promoted the building of mills, roads, and infrastructures. He was well-liked and considered to be a fair and decent leader. But in 1632, Peter Minuit found himself in a spot of trouble. Some sources say it's because he was helping the elite landowners built the Netherlands government out of profits by trading furs illegally. Other sources say he was skimming off the top of the profit pile before the trade goods were shipped back to the Netherlands. For whatever reason, Minwe was recalled to the Netherlands and eventually, being found innocent of all his charges, he would later be hired by the Swedish government to come back to the New World and create New Sweden south on the Delaware River. But in New Amsterdam, He was replaced by an interim governor, Sebastian Kroll, K-R-O-L. Kroll was the commander at Fort Orange, and he proceeded to ignore the whole New Amsterdam project and concentrate his efforts at Fort Orange. Meanwhile, the New Amsterdam inhabitants were starting to build themselves a real community. Commander Kroll was eventually replaced by a man named Wouter Van Twiller, and he really started to get things in order. The first church was built on Manhattan Island in 1633, and the village of Brukellen was created on the eastern end of Long Island the following year. Van Tuller is the man who finally paid the Canarsie Indians for Governor's Island, on which the Dutch had been setting up their community for years now. He was trying to keep the peace with the local natives and still make sure his colonists were safe and happy. Then, in 1637... An English land agent named James Farrin shows up in New Amsterdam. He presents himself before Van Twiller, and he shows him a piece of paper from the English king showing that Farrin held the title to Long Island. So it was a, uh, I've got the pink slip, so get lost, moment for Farron. Well, the Dutch government had him promptly arrested, and they shipped him off to the Netherlands for trial. Van also managed to capture a vessel full of English settlers trying to sneak in from the Virginia colony, and he shipped them right back from whence they came. Not only had he made the colony more safe and profitable, but he had amassed a huge fortune for himself, which tends to make people upset when they're not included in your schemes. So, complaints were made, and he was removed from office in 1637 for being corrupt, and they sent him back to the Netherlands. And the Dutch colonists watched him sail away and then went back to work. They established the village of Harlem in 1637. And then in 1638, the new governor arrived. His name is William Keft, and he immediately impressed everyone by forming a 12-man council to govern, which he then promptly ignored and did what he wanted to do anyways. For the next several years, New Amsterdam would become more palatable to the average person, and the population started to grow. Immigrants were beginning to come in, not just from the Netherlands, but from Sweden, England, Ireland, Germany, Poland, Russia, and from all over Europe. In fact, during the 1640s, a Jesuit missionary writes that he heard eighteen European and African languages spoken just in Manhattan alone. And William Keft kept improving the lives of his people. In 1642, the first church was built in Albany. Businesses were flourishing, people were becoming prosperous, and everything was going great. Well, not for the natives. And this was about to become Keft's undoing. Here's why. The Vekweheg and the neighboring Tappan Indians that were displaced when the Europeans kicked them off Manhattan had taken up residence on the New Jersey side of the Hudson River. There, they put pressure on the Hackensack and the Raritan tribes, who already lived there. When the Hackensack tried to kick the intruders out of their neighborhood, the refugees ran back to the two nearest Dutch villages for protection. One of those villages was the town of New Amsterdam on the east side of the Hudson River and one was at a place on the west side of the river called Pavonia. Keft was watching all of these freaked-out natives pour into his colony, and he was becoming alarmed at the sheer number of them. Knowing he can't outfight them, he tried to tax the snot out of them. Since they were essentially refugees fleeing with only what they could carry, that didn't work. Then he got it in his paranoid head that they were gathering on his borders to strike so he ordered a preemptive attack to chase them away. His soldiers snuck across the Hudson River in the dead of night, positioning themselves throughout the sleeping Lenape families, and there they waited for the signal to attack. I will spare you the gruesome details of this massacre, because even I was deeply disturbed by some of the things that happened, and I deal with the horrors of history all the time. If you've got the stomach for it and you want to research it further... Look up the Pavonia Massacre, P-A-V-O-N-I-A, February 25th, 1643. What you need to know for the purpose of this episode is that more than 120 men, women, and children were brutally butchered. And the word brutally is not nearly a strong enough word. The worst part was that the soldiers who enacted this massacre enjoyed themselves so much, that they bragged for days about what they'd done. The colonists had not been happy about the natives giving them a hard time, but that was not how it should have been handled. They were doubly horrified when dead and mutilated children started washing up on their pristine beach. So they did something about it. They forced the governing council to act. That 12-man council that kept created and then ignored were horrified when they heard the details. They petitioned the government back home in the Netherlands to do something. Keft was immediately recalled home to stand trial for murder. But his shipwrecked off the coast of Wales, and he drowned before justice could be served. But one thing that did come out of this is that all those different tribes now banded together against the Dutch, and the colonists were going to be the ones who paid the price. Shortly after in 1643, the English Civil War started. That drew England's attention away from the colonies to deal with its own matters, and that gave the Dutch colonists some breathing room on that warfront, though the native raids continued in earnest. The Netherlands sent their new governor over to the still mortified New Amsterdam and told them to get it in order. That man's name was Peter Stuyvesant though his nickname in history is Peg Leg Pete because he lost one leg to a cannonball years earlier. He was a tough guy. Stuyvesant was no lightweight either. This man was well-experienced in dealing with hostilities, and he had a super sharp wit about him, and he had a profound moral compass. And he immediately set about making things better. He improved the roads, including the Vukwehe Trail, which was... Up to now, basically a footpath carved through the swamps and rocks that ran the whole length of Manhattan. He widened it so several wagons could use it at one time, and he laid a solid road down to keep those heavy wagons from sinking into the muck. This broad new way would become Broadway. He improved infrastructure and defenses, including a 12-foot wall to keep out the native and English raiders. In fact, he had a new road created there as well, just inside the wall. Its name? was Wall Street. Rather than try to keep out foreign trade vessels, he opened the port to other nations, charging them a fee to enter, bringing in revenue, and this combined with making the island a cleaner and more hospitable place, that started the money really rolling in. He cleaned up the city's image, even banning alcohol sales before 2 p.m. on Sundays, and he banned livestock from public buildings, inside and out. And in 1645, Peter Stuyvesant signed a peace treaty with the Rockaway natives living on Long Island. And he bought the land they lived on. Legitimately, legally, bought it. This would be the same land that England thinks it owns. Remember that tidbit. Peter was a busy man. Soon after, he bought more land on the eastern end of Long Island. The town of Vlissingen was established. Though you've probably heard it called Flushing. Well, Stuyvesant was on a roll. In 1647, he acquired the island that would someday be named Staten Island. Now, back to England for a second. The Civil War is dragging on. And the people there are fed up with the monarchy. So in 1649, Charles I, their king, is executed. And the revolutionary Oliver Cromwell is now the man in charge. And he's a take-charge kind of military guy who starts Really pushing for settlement in the New World. This causes all sorts of issues for the Dutch, who just want to go about their business, make their money, and be left alone. Now, Dutch immigrants are coming in every month trying to stake out a claim in this burgeoning city. One of those immigrants was a Dutch man named Klaus Martensen van Rosenvelt. He gets to the new city and he immediately buys 50 acres smack in the middle of Manhattan. His son Nicholas would Americanize their last name to Roosevelt, and that family would go on to produce two American presidents, Theodore and Franklin Delano, and a first lady, Eleanor, plus countless politicians, bankers, and socialites. Part of that 50 acres of Roosevelt land would someday be the home to the Empire State Building. Then in 1651, England finally sorted out their issues, and the English Civil War is now over. Cromwell is firmly in control, and despite his repeatedly insisting he was not a monarch, he started acting like a monarch. One of his first pieces of legislature is the 1651 Navigation Act. In this act, he mandates that all trading to any home or international English settlement had to come on an English ship, essentially forcing the Dutch out of trading with Scotland, any English colony in America, and all South American, Caribbean, and African settlements. Keep in mind that the English believe they own Long Island, even though it's the Dutch and the Natives who are sitting on it. So in Cromwell's mind, only English ships should be trading with those settlements. Since the Dutch told him to get lost when he insisted they weren't allowed to trade with the people of New Amsterdam, because England owned it, Cromwell opened season on all Dutch ships. The English fleet began privateering and openly seizing Dutch merchant ships. This is the beginning of the First Anglo-Dutch War. The first year alone, 140 ships were seized. All total, the Dutch lost hundreds of vessels over a course of the next few years and an untold amount of trade goods and money. Then the hostilities begin to die down. But in 1652, things again come to a head between the Dutch Lieutenant Admiral Martin Tromp and English General at Sea, Robert Blake. Besides the Navigation Act, Cromwell had also decreed an ordinance that all foreign fleets in the North Sea Or the English Channel had to dip their flag in salute, reviving an ancient ritual of the ousted monarchy. Trump did not signal promptly, either because of a misunderstanding or more likely because he really disliked Blake and thought his rules were crap, so Blake opened fire starting the Second Anglo-Dutch War. Now all this warfare is going on either in the open ocean or in the English Channel, but back in New Amsterdam, life has gone on like normal. And in 1652, the colony is granted the honor of self-government by the Netherlands. In fact, this is the same year that the oldest house still in existence is built, the Wyckoff House in Brooklyn. On February 2nd, 1653, the Dutch government officially incorporates New Amsterdam, making it a city. And by 1654, The Second Anglo-Dutch War has ended in a resounding English victory. England's people now take a hard look at the way things are being run, and it doesn't take long before the people of England are sick of Oliver Cromwell, and after him, his hapless son, who ruled for nine months before they kicked him out. So the English people put the monarch back on the throne. Well, to be fair, they whacked the head off the last one, so it was his son who came to power. His name was Charles II, and he knew he needed to consolidate his colonies. He had them spread far and wide across the northeast of America, and he wasn't able to gain a foothold that would effectively push the Dutch out. Seeing Charles II lining his ducks up in a row, Governor of New Amsterdam, Peter Stuyvesant asked the VOC for cannon and troops to defend themselves against the English. Unfortunately, the Dutch government had just gotten its butt whipped by the English, so Stuyvesant was not high on their priority list. So, when the English sailed an entire fleet into the harbor in 1664, aiming to seize New Amsterdam, a desperate Peter Stuyvesant made to defend his city and his people with just what he had. But the colonists said no. They were merchants, not soldiers. They lived in buildings made of wood that were staring down the barrels of all those English cannon. They felt no loyalty to the Dutch, who had pretty much left them high and dry anyways. So they discussed it amongst themselves and decided to surrender. Being a native New Yorker myself, it is my completely unprofessional opinion that this is the point where the true New Yorker mentality came into being. They were no longer Dutch or English or German or African. They were just New Yorkers. The English renamed the city New York and offered to give any of the Dutch who wanted to leave a ride home, free of charge, and no one left. With the city of New Amsterdam now surrendered, the rest of the New Netherlands followed suit, and before long, Dutch town names were being replaced by English ones. Fort Orange became Albany. Brooklyn became Brooklyn. Lisingen became Flushing. And it was back to business as usual. In fact, for the next 12 years, the population increased, the businesses prospered, and people made decent livings. Then, London had a horrendous year in 1666. First of all, Yersinia pestis, that bacterium that causes the plague, came back to town. Again, for the fourth time. Out of a population of around 460,000 people living in London, it's estimated that this wave of the plague killed more than 100,000. As if piles of foul-smelling dead bodies weren't bad enough, in September, a fire broke out in a bakery, and fueled by high winds, quickly spread throughout London, gutting the city both inside the walls and out. Which, for the record some historians think actually helped stop the plague. And while England had its hand full with all of this insanity, the Dutch fleet sailed up the Thames in London and torched the English fleet. That was the final straw for most Londoners. In 1672, after England had rebuilt a large part of its country and its fleet, it convinced France to join them to go over and destroy the Dutch once and for all the two countries invaded the Netherlands, and the Dutch were humiliated. In July of the following year, 1673, the Dutch sailed on over to their old stomping grounds and recaptured New York, naming it New Orange. And a year later, the English fleet sailed back into the same harbor and took it back, returning the name to New York. Finally, in November of 1674, the Treaty of Westminster was signed, that awarded all of the territory in the Americas to the English, and the Dutch got the country of Suriname. It's a small country on the northern coast of South America. And for the rest of the city's history, nothing really changed. The city continued to grow, of course, the people became more prosperous, of course, and everyone lived in peace, mostly. There were issues during the Civil War, but then the entire nation was polarized by the issue of slavery, so I don't think that was unique to the Big Apple awesome new buildings were being created. The first theater in Lower Manhattan was built in 1750, called the Theater on Nassau. That was just the first of many, with an astounding 41 theaters active today. In fact, the Broadway theater scene would become one of the things that the city is renowned for. In 1786, an immigrant named John Jacob Astor would open his fur trade business in Manhattan. He called it the American Fur Company, and he often traveled among the natives of the wilderness of New Netherlands to acquire those furs. He will soon have his own episode, but know that this fur business of his, amongst his other endeavors, made him New York's first millionaire. There was a bit of a snag when the Revolutionary War kicked off in 1765 and the Americans found themselves hating everything British. The English patroon feudal overlords found themselves on the losing side. The people rioted against the rents, and the landlords lost their feudal privileges. And once that was taken care of, people went right back to being New Yorkers. Not English, not Dutch, or whatever. They banded together to get something done, then supported each other to make it happen. That New Yorker mentality would be tested again and again. Throughout the 1700s and the 1800s, the city faced wave after wave of diseases, including cholera, yellow fever, and smallpox. In the early 1900s, there was the Spanish flu and polio epidemics. There were maritime disasters, like the 1840 sinking of the Lexington paddle wheel steamer that killed more than 100 people, or the ferry accidents of the recent decades. In the panic of 1837, when the world economy fell flat on its face, New Yorkers suffered as one by one the banks collapsed and their money faded away. Scores of people became homeless, and the New Yorkers banded together for survival. The community rallied to rebuild after the Great Fire of New York in 1776, or the one in 1876 in a Brooklyn theater that killed more than 275 people. At least twice in my living memory, the city struggled through heat waves that blacked out power for days, taking away drinking water air conditioners, and critical medical life support for homebound people, and the neighbors took care of each other. Even when the environment tries to kill them off, they stand tough. From the 1950s to the 1960s, more than a thousand people died from smog, prompting thousands more to do something about cleaning it up. Hurricanes and nor'easters have taken their toll in the city. The worst hurricane-by-death toll to hit the city was in 1938, where 600 people died. Then, in 2012, Superstorm Sandy raged her way into the harbor at high tide. To make matters worse, it was a spring high tide, meaning it was a full moon at the peak of the tide cycle when all of the water was already waiting at the land's edge, and Sandy was a monstrous thousand miles across from end to end. The geography of the land funneled a 14-foot wall of water into the city, flooding all of the low-lying land which is just over 17% of the entire city. Utilities were knocked out for weeks, and subways flooded, bringing transit systems to a halt. With no power, there was no way to pump the floodwaters out of the 90,000 inundated structures. 43 people died, and 2 million people were without power for over a week. And yet, they came together and they dusted themselves off, or rather, wrung themselves out, and got back down to business. Businesses and people with generators set up charging stations so complete strangers could recharge their cell phones. Regular people pooled resources to help those around them. They didn't even know each other's names. Restaurants that were going to lose their food stocks in the prolonged power outage cooked it up and fed it to the first responders and anyone else who needed it. People who could afford it made a point of going to local small businesses and supporting them, leaving exorbitant tips to help the owners cover the lost revenues. Private citizens with boats helped each other around the flooded areas, rescuing those in need and supplying groceries to those stuck in their houses. That's the best thing about New Yorkers. They don't just get through it. They do something about it. They get up, they dust themselves off, and they put their heads together to fix the situation. And I think it goes without saying that New Yorkers were tested to their limit on September 11, 2001. 2,753 people died in a terrorist attack as two planes were flown into the Twin Towers, changing the landscape of the New York City skyline forever. As the shock wore off, the other 8.7 million people living in New York City, as well as billions more from around the world, stood in solidarity to support the survivors and each other. And again, private citizens came out for each other, supporting the first responders and ferrying trapped survivors off the island in private boats. Groups of people established stations where those disconnected from loved ones could try to reconnect. People in need found comfort and sustenance in each other, regardless of their language, their gender, their age, race, or creed. And that pretty much sums up New York City. This melting pot of tolerance, free trade, and community, and compassion are one of the greatest creations the Netherlands ever gave us. But that's not all they gave us. In the 1670s, a group of Englishmen were sitting outside a tavern on Broadway, watching a bunch of drunk Dutch men play a new game called bowling on the grassy field across the street. This patch of land went on to become known as the bowling green and it would become New York City's first municipal park. In the Dutch bakeries that formed around the cities, the bakers would create a small cake that they used to test the temperature of the ovens. Today, we call them cookies. And those bakeries also brought us pancakes, donuts, waffles, and pretzels. In 1600s Dutch delis, they created something called salade. It was a dish of shredded cabbage melted butter, vinegar, and oil. And though mayo would not be invented for another 200 years or so, today we call that dish coleslaw. The Dutch also brought us our first image of that jolly toy maker at Christmas time. Because in 1773, Santa Claus was first depicted in Rivington's New York Gazette. Something else that became synonymous with New York City, and particularly Central Park, is ice skating. Though the Scots might debate me on this, the Netherland inhabitants were the first to use ice skating to get to their neighbors' houses for visits. They brought this mode of transportation with them to the New World, and by the 1800s, they had even created special rinks to enjoy this winter activity. And for you party types out there, it was the Dutch that brought us the bar scene. Remember, over a quarter of all their buildings were taverns. And if you enjoy sitting on your front stoop and watching the neighborhood go by, you can thank the Dutch for that too. The word stoop is derived from stoop, meaning a step built to elevate houses out of the seasonal flooding in the Netherlands. They also gave us the word boss. The Dutch word B-A-A-S, boss, means master. And it's not just the Dutch, though, who contributed to this diverse city. We can thank the English that the theater district is called Broadway and not the Quahake Trail. In fact, as more and more immigrants came into New York City, they conglomerated with people who spoke their own languages, creating wonderful neighborhoods like Koreatown or Little Italy, Little Odessa, Greenpoint. We can thank an Irish-born composer and an American-born conductor who put their heads together in 1842 to form the New York Philharmonic, putting New York City at the forefront of the music scene. In fact, musicians from all over the 17th century world would call the city home, and music would evolve and morph and grow into unique forms of jazz, R&B, folk music, funk, heavy metal, punk, glam rock, and even rap. Eventually, so much musical talent would exist in the city that a special school would be created in 1905 called the Juilliard School, and it would go on to become a world leader in music conservancy. Artists and poets and writers from all over the globe would also call the city home, bringing with them differing styles and characteristics that would morph and meld into the diverse forms of art we know today. Over the centuries, the prosperous people of New York invested back into their city. In 1845, John Jacob Astor, that creator of the American Fur Company and the first millionaire in the U.S., died. And in his will, he bequeathed money to create the Astor Library, which opened its doors to the public in 1854 and eventually became the New York Public Library System. Andrew Carnegie, the Scottish-American industrial tycoon, created the Carnegie Foundation that would issue grants to programs promoting education. And it's because of that investment that in 1969, Sesame Street was first created for public television with a set that looked like a New York City street. On September 4th, 1882, Thomas Edison flipped a switch at the Pearl Street station, creating light and heat for New Yorkers at the 1st cogeneration station in the world. In fact, New York City would become the home of many firsts, like the first cemetery for your pet, the first American chess tournament, the first 3D movie, the first roller coaster in the U.S., and female attorneys back at a time when women weren't even allowed to vote. Other unique creations that came out of New York include club sandwiches, and possibly, depending on the source, hot dogs in rolls that were smothered in ethnic favorites like cheese or chili or sauerkraut. Besides being a global center of culture, fashion, entertainment, and finance, this little Dutch colony became a major influencer of technology, politics, and today it houses the headquarters of the United Nations, becoming the center of international diplomacy. All of this from a ship full of Dutch colonists who landed on a little island in the middle of the wilderness. Amazing. That's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed our stroll through the history of New Amsterdam. Check out the website for more on this and other topics concerning the fur trade era at fursandfrontiers.com. Join me in a few weeks for another deep dive into the fledgling nation while we look at everything that made the fur trade awesome. Have a great weekend, everybody, and keep your powder dry. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.